Good morning. Oh, there we go. Would you please open your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Before we begin, let me pray for our time. Heavenly Father, we pray as we approach your word that you would help us, God, in this task. God, may the words be clear. Lord, help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that that we would receive this message um, with sensitivity, but Lord, also with conviction. God, help us to to not shy away from, from what your word teaches us and calls your church to do. We pray all this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. How good are you at receiving correction? When your boss gives you an annual review, are you appreciative of any critical feedback? Or do you tend to feel defensive and make excuses? How about when a spouse or a close friend mentions to you maybe something that you said or did that was inappropriate? Do you feel the walls go up or do you listen closely? It seems that if you're human, at some point in your life, you will be the victim of someone giving you correction with poor taste. Maybe it'll come across with good intentions, but more or less, I think we've all experienced a time when someone tried to tell us something, but it came across as harsh and critical or judgmental. I'm not talking about that, though. I'm talking about the type of correction in which the person has studied the situation, they've studied God's Word, and they've even studied you, and they brought to you things in your life, maybe a blind spot that you should consider. How do you respond to that type of correction? Do you consider yourself to be a teachable person? Do you even thank people for letting them know of ways in which you can improve? Most of us would say that being on the receiving end of correction is torture. Don't you know that feeling when you feel it coming and someone's about to say something and maybe they preface it, they have a little lead on? Hey, I know you're good at a lot of things, but... And you feel that emotional and physical reaction. Maybe you're someone where you're tempted when you receive correction to communicate to that person that this will not be happening again. And maybe you say to them, well... Why don't you worry about the two by four in your own eye and stop looking at the speck of dust in my eye? Or maybe you just, again, put up a wall and become passive aggressive and give one word answers, communicating that you are checked out of the conversation. Or maybe the the good old famous, you flip the script. Since we're playing this game, let me list 20 things in which you need to improve as well. Receiving godly correction and criticism is difficult. No one enjoys it. It always feels unnatural. It's awkward. It's hard. But how about giving godly correction or criticism? 
It used to be a virtue of someone that they could lovingly tell you ways in which to improve or to, to point out a blind spot. Proverbs 27, 5 through 6 says this, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, and profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Proverbs thinks that it's a virtue of being a good friend that you would actually tell your friend that maybe they have some spinach in their teeth. Or maybe they've interacted poorly with their spouse. It's no surprise that the art and discipline of giving and receiving godly criticism is lost on most. In fact, I think the virtue of the day is the ante of Proverbs 27. That better is hidden rebuke. That true friends tell you only what you want to hear. And nothing ever hard, and your enemies tell you the truth. And those are the ones who speak hard truths into your life. We live in a culture that is telling us to be overly tolerant to people. And we've noticed even in prior sermons the, the reality of cancel culture. And because of all that, and maybe past bad experiences, learning to give and receive godly criticism is very hard. And so in, in many ways, I think we should think about this idea of giving and receiving criticism as a direct result of what we think about the gospel itself. Our response to how we give and receive critical feedback really in many ways comes down to what we understand about the nature of the Christian faith altogether. Jonathan Lehman in his book on church discipline is really helpful. He gives two gospels. And one of them is obviously right. And one of them is I, what I would say is maybe truncated or deficient. But let me, let me read these two different gospels that get preached and, and received by different people. And, and as I read them, do your best to try to discern the differences. Gospel number one. God is holy. We have all sinned, separating us from God. But God sent his son to die on the cross and rise again so that we might be forgiven. Everyone who believes in Jesus can have eternal life. We're not justified by works. We're justified by faith alone. The gospel therefore calls people to just believe. An unconditionally loving God will take you as you are. Let's consider gospel two. God is holy. We have all sinned, separating us from God. But God sent his son to die on the cross and rise again so that we might be forgiven and begin to follow the son and king and Lord. Anyone who repents and believes can have eternal life, a life which begins today and stretches into eternity. We're not justified by works. We're justified by faith alone. But the faith which works is never alone. The gospel calls all people, therefore, to repent and believe. And a contra-conditionally loving God will give you contrary to what you deserve and then enable you by the power of the Spirit to become holy and obedient like his son. And so God, by reconciling you to himself, God has also reconciled you to his family, the church, and enables you as his people to represent together his own holy 
character and triune glory. Hopefully you weren't trying to write down every difference because there's a lot. But clearly one gospel says, just believe. God will just forgive you. But one gospel calls us to not just believe, but to repent. To follow Jesus as Lord. The reality is, if we hold to gospel number one, giving criticism and judgment and things like discipline are going to be confusing. They're going to be things maybe that you consider to be judgmental or harsh. But if we understand the gospel as it was secondly presented, that a call to belief and repentance, then discipline is not strange. It is a natural implication of the gospel. This morning in our passage, we are seeing that the Corinthian church was not correcting or disciplining a member who was engaged in gross immorality. Paul ends chapter 4 with a call to imitate him. Paul is as in saying, I am a model of someone who lives a cross-centered life. And so Corinthian church, follow my example. And if the Corinthian church did this, they would know that tolerating gross immorality in the church is unquestionable. That if the Corinthian church really did imitate Paul, they would know that it would be the wise, loving, and biblical thing to do in disciplining the person in unrepentant sin. So 1 Corinthians 5 is one of the more clear passages we have in the New Testament regarding this concept that most refer to as church discipline. And here, I think, is a great summary of the entire chapter. We, we decided to take the whole chapter. I debated whether I should break it up, but we're going to do the whole chapter. Here's a good summary. We'll have it on the screen for you. That since the church has been made holy, we must not tolerate sin. Christ has redeemed for himself a people, God's own possession, a royal priesthood, We are to be who we are. Paul will give us some great theology referring back to the Passover. Paul wants the church to be who they really are. They are God's holy people. Therefore, the most natural implication of who you are as God's people is you do not tolerate sin. You don't tolerate sin individually. And in the passage today, we will see that we must not tolerate sin corporately either and so just like the corinthians who wanted to turn a blind eye towards this man's sin so it is today in which many churches turn a blind eye towards passages like the one we're considering and i think it's fascinating that as as much as the gross immorality that they're tolerating um, maybe in my mind would have been the bigger deal paul doesn't actually spend much time talking about the person sinning His rebuke is for the church in tolerating it. And so what I would like to do for our time is actually would like to begin by by, by reading verses 1 and 2. And what I would like for that time to be is maybe setting up the rest of the sermon and also giving us a little bit of a helpful background on this idea of church discipline. So I'm going to use verses 1 and 2 to set up the sermon. And then after that, we're going to go into the rest of the sermon. So if you have your Bibles, would you look down with me? 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. 
and a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Are you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now again, Paul just ended his formal kind of theological argument about the differences between the wisdom of the cross and the wisdom of the world. And now from chapter 5 to the rest of the book, he's going to take issue after issue after issue. And in his mind, the most glaring problem this church has outside of their unity problems is that there is a man who is kind of in their midst engaged in a gross form of sexual immorality. The word for sexual morality is this word called porneia. It's where we get the word pornography. It's used 26 times from Matthew to Revelation. And really, it's a, it's a catch-all word for a variety of different sexual sins. And the sin in Corinth, the sin in particular here, is a man seems to be having an ongoing sexual relationship with his either late father's wife or his father's divorce wife. We don't really know. We don't get any more details about it. But it's not necessarily his mom because that would have been a whole different sin. So Paul here is actually referring back to the sexual ethic code of Leviticus 18. We read this. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. And so the sin here is he is having this ongoing relationship with his stepmom. But as egregious as this sin is, that even the Corinthian pagan culture would have frowned upon, Paul doesn't say much about this man. He is actually more outraged about their lack of outrage. Look what he says. He says, and you are arrogant, verse 2. Look at verse 6. He even says, your boasting is not good. Now, now some people have described this, that the Corinthians were kind of like, you know, winking at the guy when he walked into church service, like, you know, giving him attaboys. That the, the Corinthian culture looked at this sin and they were horrified, but, but the, the, you know, the Corinthian believers were kind of like giving them a thumbs up. I actually don't think that's the best way to read this. I, I think probably most people in the church were kind of disgusted by the sin. If, if even the Corinthian culture didn't like it, the fact that it was reported to Paul, someone had to tell him like, hey, there's this dude, he's doing this thing, it's kind of weird. Most people think that the man in this sin probably was rich, that he had a high social status. Maybe the church met in one of his houses and they were afraid that if they took a strong line that they might lose something. Maybe he wouldn't tithe anymore. And so in essence what Paul is saying here, he's saying, you Corinthian believers, you think you are so spiritual you think you have all these spiritual gifts. You think, like, hearkening back to chapter 4, you think that you're like kings. You, you think that you are a mature church. But look what you are tolerating. How are you so arrogant when you have such a blatant sin in your church and you turn a blind eye towards it? The response you should have is grief and lament. And what does he say? Are you not rather to mourn? 
And so Paul is saying, you cannot be a healthy church by allowing corporate sin to reign in your body. And so Paul says, if you really were spiritual, if you really did imitate me, if you really did what you're supposed to be doing, you would have, what does he say in verse 2? Remove this person. So what does it mean to remove this person? Now then, again, this is where we refer to as church discipline. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus, in verse 18, he gives his church authority to both bind and loosen others into the kingdom. Okay, now I don't want to necessarily have a topical sermon on church discipline and church membership, but a basic understanding of these concepts is going to help us understand what Paul is asking for when he says to remove this person. So in essence, the church has the authority to bind people to the kingdom of God. This is what we refer to as membership. Here, in essence, is what church membership is. Hey, more or less, we have heard your profession of faith about the gospel, that you believe the right things about Jesus. And not only do you profess it, but you also live a life that is true of that profession. There are a lot of people who say they believe in God, who say they believe in Jesus, but their lives are very contrary to that. More or less, the church should not affirm. They should not give kind of that, that stamp of approval. They should be more discerning. But, but more or less, if someone believes in the gospel and they live a life in, in light of that profession, we, 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 we get them baptized, they join the church, they're members. But Jesus says sometimes there's sheep among the goats. There's wheat with the terrors. Sometimes in the community of the citizens of the kingdom of God, there will be people who show themselves to not actually have that passport. They're not really a citizen in that kingdom based on how they are living. And so the, the church has also been given the authority to loosen. And that's what we refer to as church discipline. Not that we ever get this, the final say of whether or not someone is a Christian, but more or less the church has the ability, the authority to say, we can no longer affirm someone who believes in Jesus and lives in unrepentant sin. And so to have membership and affirmation of your, of your credible profession of faith, but to not have discipline makes the affirmation pretty meaningless. You need church membership with church discipline. The two really go hand in hand. Most churches want to practice one and ignore the latter. And so that's what Paul is telling them to do. Remove this person. Make it clear to him that you can no longer affirm that this person is part of God's kingdom. And so how do you remove someone if they don't belong? I think this is a clear passage of just... uh, of what church membership is all about, that if you belong to something, you can be removed from it, but if you can't belong, you can't be removed. And so, with all that said, last thing I want to say, again, I'm trying to avoid a topical sermon on church discipline. The nature of this man's sin gives us a good indication of what corporate church discipline should look like, okay? So first thing we see is that church discipline is usually reserved for sins that are either egregious and serious. Church discipline is not reserved for telling white lies or losing your temper. Church discipline, we see in Scripture, is typically only for those sins that are very public, egregious, and lastly, unrepentant. Unrepentant. 
Some people have noticed that the Matthew 18 formula that Jesus calls for for church discipline is a little different than what Paul does here. Paul seems to go straight for his removal. If you read Matthew 18, Jesus says, if someone is, you know, if a brother or sister is sinning, you should go to that person. If they don't change, you bring one or two other with them. If that doesn't work, you get the elders involved. If that doesn't work, you bring it before the church. If that doesn't work, you are to remove them. Now, it seems like Paul goes straight for the jugular. Just, just remove him. And I, I think there's two things we can maybe assume based on this. First is that maybe the first two steps had already happened. And nothing really happened. The guy's still around. And so Paul says, remove him. But I think also we can surmise that in particularly egregious sins that are already known in public to the church, immediate removal is necessary. And so in the case of this man, you have all three things. His sin is serious, it is outward and it is public, and it is unrepentant. And so Paul says, because of that, you are to remove him. There are a lot of things we could talk about in the semantics of church discipline, but what I would like to do for the rest of our time in this passage is to show you why not practicing church discipline is an uncaring thing to do. And so Paul here, what he's going to show us is three reasons why it is actually a loving thing to do in practicing church discipline. So that's going to be our outline of going through these, the rest of these ten verses is three reasons why it is a loving thing to do in practicing church discipline. Let's begin with the first one. Point number one, discipline promotes repentance in the person sinning. Let's look at our Bibles, verses three through five. We see this first point. Verse three, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. And so in many ways, this first point serves as the goal of church discipline. It is to promote repentance in the unrepentant sinner. Not that it necessarily always happens, but that is our goal to say is that it would promote repentance. Now, these are some interesting verses, and there's some kind of interesting language, and that's a little ominous, but more or less, if you remember, at the end of chapter 4, some pe- Paul accuses them of being arrogant. They're saying Paul wasn't going to return, and Paul kind of says, on the contrary, I am with you in spirit. And really what he's doing here, by establishing his authority, by being with them in spirit, he's helping these Corinthians kind of come on to his side And to have the same judgment in his mind. And so Paul says, even though I'm not there, I'm with you guys. And so since I'm with you, you need to be with me in declaring judgment about this man and the sin. And what's more interesting is he appeals to the authority of Christ himself, right? He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, Now, there have been some reactions that people would say, well, Jesus would never do this. Jesus would never make someone sin public. Paul doesn't seem to think so. Paul is calling for this public removal with the authority of Christ. And so the verse that maybe it's a little weird for us, we read this and we think, what does that mean? Is it maybe in verse 5, he says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Well, what does that mean? That, that does, sounds pretty ominous. So 
In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul is talking about those who have made a shipwreck of their faith. And he's talking about Hermionus and Alexander. And he says something similar. They were given into false teaching. And so Paul says this, Among whom are Hermionus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So Paul says right here, the purpose of handing someone over to Satan is to teach them. So in in many ways, it's restorative, it's corrective. And I think a better way to translate verse 5 is is him kind of saying, you are to turn this man back into into the sphere of Satan. Not that Satan would have like um, extra merit to beat this guy up or harm him physically, but in essence what he's saying is, is there's only two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God's beloved son, and then there's the kingdom of Satan and his forces and his rule. You need to place him back under that rule, because that's how he is acting. Okay, So in essence, he's telling him to make a judgment call. You need to pretend him not to be a citizen, revoke his passport more or less. Of the, of the kingdom of God, of, of that citizenship, and you need to place him over here. Why? He says, for the destruction of his flesh. Now, Paul does not mean that this man's going to die, even though later in 1 Corinthians, we see that some people have died because of their sins. But I think what Paul is saying here is still that the destruction of what is fleshly or carnal within him, those sinful tendencies, make it clear to him so that what is earthly in him may die. And he explains it even more. He says, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And so the goal of clearly making him outside of the camp, of handing him over, was to see him change from his sin. In many ways, church discipline is a micro-judgment. It's, it's a mini-playing out of a greater, much far worse judgment to come if you do not change. So let me be very clear. Paul does not want to punish this man. He wants to correct him. He doesn't want to see this man perish. He wants to see this man saved. But how unloving, how uncaring would Paul and this church be if they gave him the stamp of approval even though his life lived so contrary to the gospel that he professed? Have you noticed that the word disciple and discipline are very similar? A disciple is someone who is being disciplined. And there's two different types of discipline. There is what we refer to as instructive discipline, which is what we're doing now. I'm teaching you God's word. People take us on Bible studies. We learn things. We learn the truth. That is instructive discipline. But there is also corrective discipline, which is what Paul is calling for right here. Imagine a doctor who goes into the poorer communities of his city and he educates them about what it means to be healthy. He tells them about eating vegetables and avoiding processed carbs and getting sleep and drinking water and taking, you know, 30 minutes a day to exercise and and helping them with some practical ways of being healthy. He is instructing them. He is disciplining them of how to, you know, by bringing instruction of how to be healthy. But imagine a doctor who never fights against aggressive cancer. 
A doctor does both. He helps them to be patient, and then he fights to keep them healthy. Imagine a teacher. Maybe you're in math class, and, and you fail every single test, but your teacher is really worried about how you're going to feel that, and so they give you an A. But at the end of the semester, you have an F on your report card. See, a good teacher knows at times it's not just instructive, but it needs to be corrective. So corrective discipline is a loving way to say to an individual caught in unrepentant sin, careful, warning, and even greater judgment is coming if you do not turn. So please turn back now. That is what Paul is doing here. It is not about punishment. It is not about shaming. Church discipline, when practiced right, should always be restorative in nature. It's about a father walking in humility who mourns for his children, wanting to see the best for them. The goal of church discipline is not to produce worldly sorrow in a person, but it's to help them to produce godly grief in which they truly lament and mourn for their sins, remember the gospel, and turn back to Christ. And so maybe you can think of a time in your life in which someone brought you some correction. And maybe in the moment you didn't like it. Maybe you threw up all the fences and you said, that person doesn't know what they're talking about. But maybe as maybe the days, weeks, months, or even the years went by, you kind of went back to that conversation. And you thought about what that person had said. And maybe you said, well, it could have been done in a little different way. But I think there's a lot of truth to what they were saying. Maybe I do need to see this area of my life and change. Maybe you wouldn't thank that person. Maybe you never have. But imagine the joy of ours to see a brother or sister engage in egregious, public, unrepentant sin and to warn them, to make it clear. Maybe they don't at first respond. Maybe they continue on. Maybe it takes years, but maybe because of the corrective discipline, that person, they change. They listen. Consider the joy that would be ours to see a brother or sister restored, to glory with them in heaven. The discipline is for the person in unrepentance, and it's loving. It's restorative in nature. It pro- promotes repentance when done in a biblical and loving way. But secondly, we see that discipline helps the body by purifying the church. Would you look down at verse 6? Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so Paul now provides the theological grounds for why church discipline is needed for this man. 
And I think of all the passages that Paul could have used to support, you know, this, this removal, I, I find it a little surprising that he goes back to the imagery of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, I'm sure you're somewhat familiar with this idea of Passover. But in Exodus 12, the tenth and final plague that, that God brought upon the Egyptians through his prophet Moses was the angel of death. And more or less, the, the, the Israelites were told, hey, on this night, the angel's going to pass by every house, and the firstborn son of every house is going to die, unless, and they were given instructions, they were to go find a little lamb who was perfect and spotless, and they were to kill that lamb, and they were to get its blood, and they were to put it on the doorpost. And that night, when the angel of death came, any house that had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, it passed over that house. But any house and any person who was in a house without the blood of the lamb, they suffered the judgment. Now this was such an important identifying feature of, of the Jews that God even established a memorial in which the way they celebrated the Passover was through the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Exodus 12, verse 16, on the first day you shall hold, now, now listen very carefully, you shall hold a holy assembly. On the seventh day, a holy assembly. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. This feast was going to be a picture for them. That God did not simply redeem his people just so that they can enjoy the benefits of freedom. He redeemed them to make them his people and God wants his people to be like him. And who is God like? He is holy. And so this picture, of which is unusual for us, I'm sure, but a little leaven, it contaminates the whole lump. The feast was to help them to understand that, that a little sin in the camp festers and it grows. And it makes the whole community at risk. I think these kind of corporate illustrations for us who live in highly individualistic societies are hard. But here, in essence, what Paul is saying, your sin is never personal. It always affects the community. Think of how unloving it is to the church if someone is engaged in sin. Imagine one of our worship leaders, and maybe it's known that they live in open and unrepentant sin, and in, 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 in a part of sin that's egregious. But every week they get up here and they lead worship. Every week they, they, they live the continual sinful patterns of their lives, but nothing is ever done. Maybe people know about it and they think, well, that's a little weird, but oh well, I guess if the elders don't care, maybe I don't care. And you start getting this picture, well, I, guess, I guess you can be a Christian and do these things. I guess you can serve in children's ministry and, and serve as an elder and, and commit to these kind of sins. It, it starts to kind of spread to the church, this little virus. I'm just even a little sin can grow. Don't we know this in our own life? A little sin. You say, I'm just going to look one time. And then I'm going to look again. And then I'm going to look again. And then I start lying. And then I start changing. 
A little sin individually in our lives grows and festers. And so it is corporately. Now, Paul here gives one of the most incredible verses, I think, of the whole book, right here in verse 7. He says, cleanse out the old leaven. That's another way of saying remove this guy, that you may be a new lump. And look what he says, very important, as you really are unleavened. Here's what Paul is saying. Don't you know that you have, Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed? You are a holy people don't you remember the introduction when Paul says, together you have been called as saints? What does it mean to be a saint? It means to be sanctified. Paul is saying, don't you, don't you know that when Christ has saved you, he has called you to be his holy people? In essence, what, what Paul is saying is what the whole New Testament tells us. Be who you really are. And, and so the moment you have united to Christ by faith, here, here's who you become. Holy, sanctified, free, forgiven by God, reconciled to God and reconciled to his church. Now the reality is sometimes we don't always live up to that identity. Sometimes we live rather contrary to who we really are. But Paul is saying, you are unleavened, act like it. You are holy, increasingly be holy, which means this. If you are to be who you are as God's holy people, it means don't tolerate sin. Because Christ is our Passover lamb and he has been sacrificed. So how does a New Testament Christian celebrate Passover? Well, we celebrate it by being a people who are holy. But more than this, look what he says in verse 8. We celebrate it not with the old leaven, the leaven of mouth and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, I think what Paul here is referring to is the Lord's table. The way we celebrate the Passover is not by this feast of unleavened bread, but it's by coming to the table, which I think what Paul is saying here is do not let this person engage in this sin who we can no longer affirm come to the Lord's table. This is why in some church traditions you see a very strong emphasis about protecting and guarding the table. Even in our church, sometimes we give an important qualification. Hey, before we come to this table or the cup passes, if you are not a Christian... We encourage you to let this time go. And so the reality of what Paul is saying here is a very, very important truth for us. That Christ did not simply die to get us a ticket into heaven. But he died to recreate us in his own image. So that both individually and corporately we may represent the character of God by the way we live our lives together. So if, if Paul is very concerned about corporately getting rid of the leaven, of not tolerating sin, how much more does this have implications for us personally? What sins in your life do you give safe harbor to? What sins in your life do you tend to, well, I see other people doing it, it must be fine. What, what sins do you just kind of justify and excuse over? Paul says, cleanse it out. Just even a little begins to fester and grow and to contaminate. Think of the context of sexual sin. Don't you recognize that your sin is never personal? What you look on your phone, you think it just affects you, it's a harmless thing? Paul says, no, it affects the whole community. And so, as a matter of fact, if we're going to be a church that has a witness 
That church is filled with individual members who take sin seriously, who don't tolerate it. So how can we be a healthy church if individually we don't take care of the leaven in our own life? Church discipline is loving because it's for the promotion of repentance in the sinner, but it's also for the purity of the church. And lastly, we see that discipline protects the church's gospel witness. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, a rival, or a drunkard, or swindler, and not even to eat with such one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now imagine this man in question comes to work on Monday morning. Maybe he's talking to his employees or his coworkers, and maybe someone asks him, so what did you do on the weekend? And maybe he begins to tell them, well, I'm part of this new community. It's all about this guy named Jesus. He's a Jew. And we follow him as Lord. There are no other lords. He is God. And our lives now are to be increasingly remade after his. And we wait for his glorious return or to live with him in glory. So I was with those believers yesterday in that new community. And imagine his employees or coworkers knew about the sin in his life and they begin to kind of connect the two. Well, maybe that's why you're engaging in this gross form of immorality. Apparently being a Christian allows you to do such a thing. Think of the witness that we all have in our, in our job forces, in our workplaces. Paul here reminds the Corinthians of their judicial role in actually discerning who is in and who isn't. Now, if I asked you what you thought the most quoted verse in the Bible is, I think most of you would say John 3.16. But you might be surprised to hear that it's not John 3.16. It's actually Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not lest you be judged. And maybe a second one right after that is God is love. And so it seems like this common pattern, the second that the church is prophetic in any way, the immediate reaction is, hey, don't judge me. God is love. Don't, don't, you, you can't be my judge. You're not my judge. Mind the two by four in your own eye. I'll take care of my own problems. God forgives me. God loves me. I'm good. I think this is an interesting passage for people who say that. Now, what Paul is saying here is saying, listen, I'm not telling you guys that you can't ever interact with people who are sinners out in the world. We should expect people who don't follow Christ to behave like Christ. That's a weird expectation to have of people. Why would you expect people who don't follow Christ to behave like him? But here's what he is saying. You should expect people to behave like Christ if they say they follow Christ. I think there's maybe a little lesson here about how evangelicals many times can point about all the evils of the outside world but ignore the sins in their own midst. But Paul here wants them to know, listen, if somebody calls himself brother and they live an inconsistent lifestyle, and he gives a list of other things, right? Um, Greed. How often is that tolerated in Christian circles? Sexual morality, idolaters, revilers, drunkards, swindlers, 
Paul is saying, no, listen, the church, you are called. You do have a judicial role of making it clear of what it looks like to follow Christ. And so after this, he says, purge the evil person from you. Now, if you have a good study Bible, you'll notice in your footnotes that Paul here is, is quoting from Deuteronomy 13. And so in Deuteronomy, you have this larger context in which Moses is preparing the Israelites to go into the promised land. And Paul, Moses, excuse me, is worried that the Israelites, when they go in the land, they're going to be influenced by the surrounding world. And so, so Moses is preparing them. No, you, you are not to engage in the same type of practices as the nations around you. And if, they, and if you do, Moses says, purge the evil person from among you. And so Paul here, again, he's just reiterating the same thing that he said already in verse 2. Remove the person among you. He said it again in verse 7. Cleanse out the lump. And right here, purge the evil person from you. Paul here is concerned about the gospel witness that this church has in Corinth. There's a, a true reality that churches lose their saltiness, they lose their light when they do not draw a distinction between them and the world. The Israelites wanted to be just like all the other nations and that made the Lord angry because they were to be his holy people who represented who the Lord really was. And so our gospel witness will only be diluted and corrupted if we do not make clear lines about what does it mean to follow Jesus. There's one more important question we have to answer before we conclude. When Paul says this strong language of do not eat with such a person or purge this person, what does that mean? Some people have interpreted these verses to mean that if someone goes through church discipline, that you're to shun this person. If you see them in the grocery store, run the other way. It's almost like a corporate church restraining order. You're not allowed in this building. Again, I think the context of the Passover and how we celebrate it, what Paul here I think is teaching is that you are to not allow him to partake in the Lord's Supper with you. That's what he meant by do not eat with them. But if we are going to pretend this person is now in the sphere of Satan and not a believer, how do we want to treat any other believer? Oh, that they would come to Christ. Oh, that they would hear the good news of who Jesus is and repent and believe. And so I don't think this is any excuse to treat people with unkindness or shame or bigotry. We should always, no matter who we're around, show the fruit of the spirit of love, tenderness, compassion, and kindness. So in conclusion, what does this mean for us here at Hope Community Church? All of these things, and I know it's been a long sermon, so thank you for hanging in with me. What does it mean for us as a church to take this truth and onboard it in our lives individually and corporately. Well, it means that we want to be a church that biblically and lovingly practices church discipline. If you're a member of our church and you've been to some of our recent members' meetings, you know that we've had to have some of these hard conversations. If you're ever to be a fly in the wall and see the elders' meetings in which we talk about these very tough shepherding situations, you will see tears and grief, and lament, and mourning. But we don't want to be practicing church discipline simply out of our conviction to be faithful to Scripture. We want to do it because it's loving and caring to the person engaging in unrepentant sin. We're saying, warning, there is a greater judgment ahead if you do not turn. 
But we also do it because of who we are. We are God's chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Individually and corporately, we want to be a people of God's own possession. We want to be a people that we can proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And we practice discipline for the sake of the world. We want to be that city on a hill, a gospel light, the salt of the earth that shines purity into a world of moral filth and corruption. But lastly and most importantly, we do this for the glory of Christ. He is our Passover lamb who died to rescue us. And since he has died for us, may we learn to follow him, love him, and obey him. Which means of all people, we should be correctable. We should be able to see the love in a brother or a sister or a spouse or a pastor who in kindness shows us ways in which we need to improve and grow. And so may we get rid of the leaven in our own lives, recognizing that it affects the whole body as a whole. Christ has made us holy. It's who you are. It's who we are, holy. Therefore, because we have been made holy, we must not tolerate sin. We must not tolerate it individually, and we must not tolerate it corporately either. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slayed. God, we are your holy people. Help us to be increasingly happy because of that truth. Holiness is happiness. And so, Lord, help us to live true to who we are. Until Christ returns or we are called to glory, Lord, we pray that you give us the faith, the grace, God, to root out any sin that we see in our lives. O oh, Spirit of Christ, help us to gladly receive your discipline. For we know that at the moment all discipline seems painful, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so remind us, Lord, that you discipline the one whom you love and you chastise every son whom you receive. And so for your glory and for your people's good, we pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.